0: Well, church, it is uh, very good to be with you this morning, and this is a very special morning, and I don't know if you realize why it's so special, and it's not because Pastor Tommy is gone and, you know, the kids are running the show for a little bit. No, it's not that, or uh, or even, you know, football has started. No, but it's, an, it's a great weekend uh, because this actually marks the two-year anniversary of us worshiping this building, as College Park, Castleton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many of you here were there that first Sunday and, or could foresee, again, all that God would do here in this congregation, and I hope uh, that we never outgrow marveling at the grace of God in bringing uh, our congregation uh, together. A lot has changed over the last two years, a lot, of, a lot of new faces, uh, but one thing that hasn't changed and one thing that will not change ever is God's Word, and so let's go to the Lord in prayer as we study His Word this morning. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plant it deep in us. Let it shape us and fashion us in your likeness. So that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to repent? <laughs> this was the question I was asked over a decade ago while walking along the boardwalk on a cool summer evening in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I was in college on a summer missions trip with Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew, and on one particular night I was out with a, a few friends and we were looking to, to find somebody if the, if the Lord would lead us to share the gospel with someone that night. And to our great dismay, uh, as we were walking, we see out in the distance a man holding up a huge yellow sign with big red letters that said, repent, and in little letters, or burn. And he would walk, and he would yell this out to anybody who would would hear within shouting distance of himself. As you can imagine, we were very uh, discouraged as we walked along the boardwalk at this evangelist's approach to getting his message out, and so we continued on past him, trying not to make eye contact with him. And we came to a bench, and there sat a, a couple from Eastern Europe who stopped us and said, excuse me, excuse me, what does it mean to repent? Said, if there was ever an evangelistic softball, this, this was it. <laughs> uh, now, I, I don't know if I swung a miss. I don't, I don't know. I can't remember. But it got me thinking, you know, do we as a church know what it means to truly Repent. If you look in the scriptures, repentance is an incredibly important topic throughout the scriptures. We see Jesus, the first words ever recorded by Jesus in Mark's gospel are repent and believe the gospel. So do we as a church know what true repentance looks like? Is there a right way or a wrong way to repent? And are, have we ourselves repented of our sins before God? Those questions and others like it will unpack today as we look at our text and And if you've been with us over the last three weeks, as Luke mentioned in his prayer, we've looked at God's mission and design for the church. We've looked at what the witness of the church ought to be, the unity of the church. And last week, we looked at the purity of the church. But today, we are going to ask, what happens when the church fails to be a faithful witness? What happens when the church's unity is broken? And what happens when the pure bride of Christ is soiled by sin? And since the church is full of redeemed sinners who are still sinful the chances of sin creeping in and threatening our witness, our unity, and our purity are very, very high. uh, 100% actually. And so when we realize we failed to represent God in the world as we ought to, what are we to do? As we look at our text, we'll see that a faithful and true church is a repenting church. And that the quality of the church's repentance matters to God. And when God's people walk in true repentance... The mercy and the grace of Christ is on full display. God's people are comforted, and the witness and the unity and the purity of the church is restored. And we'll be bouncing around and looking to a lot of texts today, but we'll focus on this text, 2 Corinthians, in three sections. First, we'll see Paul's tearful letter in verses 8 and 12. The church's godly grief in verses 9 through 11. And then finally, God's joyful comfort in verse 13. First, let's seek to understand the circumstances and the context of our passage and Paul's letter that is described here in verse 8. if you were here last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is responding to some pretty disturbing behavior that's going on in this young church that he planted. And not only was there sexual sin being accommodated in the church, but also people were getting drunk during communion. Uh, Divisions and rivalries were being stirred up over who baptized who, as if that mattered at all. And even some were outright questioning whether or not Paul even had an authority over them, that he had an apostolic authority or a word from the Lord. They were saying, it, what is, who is Paul and who is he to tell us what to do? can't imagine how hurtful that would have been to Paul. In response to these issues, Paul follows up the letter that we looked at last week, First Corinthians, with a personal visit, which commentators call the painful visit. And it was painful because it did not go well at all. Paul left discouraged by the church's response to his first letter, and so he writes another letter, a tearful letter that we see mentioned in our text and also in 2 Corinthians 2, 1-4. Now, the Lord uh, in his providence saw it not fit to preserve this copy of this tearful letter for us today, but from our text, we can see that this letter had its desired effect on the people. Paul had sent this tearful letter with Titus, And when Paul finally reconnects with Titus later, he hears that the church in Corinth received this letter well. Then out of the overflow of his joy in hearing the church's uh, repentance from Titus, he writes a third letter, the letter we know as 2 Corinthians. And in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we read about how Paul had been greatly conflicted about the letter that he had sent. Look at verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Certainly Paul, again, was astounded at the sin and rejection of his apostolic authority. And he knew this letter was necessary. But he loves this church, right? He hates to think how this letter may have grieved his children in the faith. If you're a parent, you know this feeling quite well when you have to discipline your children for their behavior and they, they sob and they, and they wail and it just breaks your heart to see them like that. You even look at your spouse and, and whisper, it's like, was that too harsh? Was that too harsh? Is, can time out be over? You think it's okay? You may even start to feel a little hint of, uh, of regret. But then... When you see their change in behavior and you get that hug after discipline is over and that restoration that you feel, you don't regret it because the discipline has produced what you hoped it would accomplish, right? Likewise, here Paul was anxious to hear how they had received the letter, that when Titus came back and they were greatly comforted that the Corinthian church had received it well, even if it produced sorrow in their hearts for a little while. If you skip down to verse 12, you see more of the purpose behind Paul's letter, he says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So Paul wrote this tearful rather, not just to make sure the wrongdoer was disciplined. And as an aside, a uh, commentator speculate on who this person was. If it was the same guy we talked about, they talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, or another person who openly opposed Paul's authority. But regardless of who it was, Paul makes it clear that he did not write this letter just to make sure that this guy was disciplined or to, that, or to make sure that the one who had been wronged, most likely Paul, would feel better, but so that the whole church might be restored to right relationship with their spiritual father, Paul, and to right relationship with their heavenly father, bearing fruit that they were surely and indeed a faithful and true church. Now jump back with me to verse 9. Paul, so relieved to hear this news that he says he rejoiced, not because he made them sad, but because their grief produced the intended effect, an effect that only comes from God working in the hearts of believers, a godly grief that leads to repentance. Which brings us to our second section today, where we'll spend most of our time, the church's godly grief. The church's godly grief. Look at verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt the godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, to be clear, the grief expressed here. And this passage is not talking about grief over a loss of a loved one or sadness over the external brokenness in the world, but Paul is talking about the sadness and regret we feel when we've done something wrong or something that we've failed to do. Paul can rejoice because he believes that the Corinthians are expressing a sadness that is actually intended by God, that's actually a gift from him, a grief that leads to repentance that's in step with their salvation. However, as you'll see here, Paul knows that just because someone is grieved or is sad after being wrongly or be strongly chastised for their sin, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're truly sorry or truly repentant. I know my my little daughter may do this at times and maybe kids in this room when you've done something wrong and you've been caught and you will quickly say "Sorry, sorry, sorry sorry, I'm sorry 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 or the like you know, you come up to your brother and sister that you've wronged. It's like, so, sorry. And, and, and right in that moment, you, you think that if I just say sorry, no matter what the tone is, it, it, that will be, excuse me from the, maybe the discipline. Maybe I'll avoid all, all the wrong things. If I can just say sorry, then that's sufficient and that's that's good. But here, Paul is telling us that there is a way to feel sorry for a sin that is actually not gone honoring. He calls it worldly grief. And worldly grief doesn't produce life It doesn't produce joy. It doesn't produce comfort. It actually produces death. Worldly grief is the fruit of a heart that may not truly embrace or understand the gospel. So we see these two types of griefs, these godly grief and the worldly grief. So how then can we tell the difference? How does Paul know that the Corinthians were walking in true repentance? So from our text and other passages, I saw... Five marks of worldly grief and seven marks of godly grief. And you can see what happens when Tommy leaves. There's a 12-point sermon that comes out. Yeah. But I promise you, again, it'll, it'll go quick. Um, I won't keep you here all day. First, let's start with worldly grief. What are the marks of worldly grief? First, worldly grief produces sorrow, but not lasting change. Worldly grief produces sorrow, but not lasting change. Some of you may remember uh, in the late 80s, a famous televangelist who is now infamous for giving a very tearful Sermon, uh, asking his followers uh, and his family for forgiveness for being caught in an egregious marital unfaithfulness. Only, uh, only for a few weeks later, to be caught again in the same sin. Now, I don't know whether or not this man has finally repented. Uh, but one thing we can take away from this story is that our tears and our confessions do not necessarily equal repentance that leads to life. Anyone can feel sorry for being caught or embarrassed in a sin. But sorrow alone does not lead to repentance. We can see this in the life of Judas Iscariot. In the Gospels, we read that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But in Matthew 27 3, that when Jesus uh, says, when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. Judas felt the conviction of sin and sought to make restitution. And he even confesses, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. However, we know Judas' end. In Acts, we see that the torment over his sin did not have him turn and run to Jesus, but rather to seek escape through death. Judas is this very vivid picture of where worldly grief leads us. Our tears, our regrets do not equal repentance, but can produce an insincere repentance leading you away from God. Now, to be clear, as one author puts it, there is a genuine sorrow that accompanies true repentance, but many who have known the flood of tears and racking sobs have never come anywhere near repentance and faith. We can be deeply embarrassed and mourn over loss or loss of reputation, but that grief may only be of the world and not a gift from the Lord if it does not lead to lasting change. Second, worldly grief produces penance and not repentance. Produces penance and not repentance. I know many of you have come from uh, Catholic backgrounds where the sacrament of penance is practice. And loosely defined, penance is an act that you perform to keep God happy so that he'll continue to bless you and to answer your prayers even in spite of your sin. And we as Protestants may, may scoff when we hear about the good deeds and the prayers that priests will give to people in order to, to receive God's grace again. But we do this informally all the time. We play a, a type of Christian karma in, in our minds with God, right? We may have sinned secretly or against someone else. And instead of truly repenting and coming clean, we tell ourselves that we can just make up for our sin by making sure I read my Bible the next day uh, and make sure I have perfect church attendance in the next couple months, maybe serve in the nursery we, we, trade, we trade this, this gospel of, of that Jesus has saved us from and, and try to earn it through our dead works. We, we live it as a way that we're thinking that our good deeds can erase our, our bad deeds. We are trying to erase our, our guilt by not going to the cross, but looking actually to ourselves. And going back to the example of Judas, he tried to make up for his betrayal by bringing back the silver, but no amount of money returned or good deeds done can cleanse a guilty conscience. But the good news of the gospel that we find in the scriptures tells us that there is a path to forgiveness. There is a path towards a clean conscience. And it starts in 1 John 1. that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can throw off our, our guilt and be cleansed and forgiven when we place our trust in Jesus Christ alone to save us. Jesus, who paid for all our debts, bore the wrath of God on our behalf, is is the perfect substitute. And he is now pleading our case before the throne of God. We don't have to add anything to Jesus. We don't have to add anything to his work on the cross. We just need to rest in it and trust in him. Don't believe the lie that your good works will one day remove your guilt. Jesus says, and tells us that he is the only one that can remove our transgressions from us and he did so at the cross for those who trust in him worldly grief it leads us to barter with god in order to restore relationships rather than turning from our sin trusting in christ and walking in new obedience third worldly grief produces excuses and avoids consequences we see this type of worldly grief in King Saul. In First Samuel 15, God commands King Saul, he says, hey, go destroy the Amalekites and don't take any of the spoils from, from war. Instead, what did Saul do? Saul spared the king of the Amalekites and took the best sheep and the oxen and the livestock. And so when Samuel, the prophet, comes to, uh, to rebuke Saul for disobeying God, instead of repenting, he makes excuses. In First Samuel 15, verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I have, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which God the Lord sent me. I brought you back, Agag the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice the Lord, your God at Gilgal. Only after Samuel tells Saul that God has rejected him as king does he finally own his sin and cry out for mercy. Worldly grief excuses our sin and, and tries to blame shift to try to avoid consequences. How many times in your, in your confessions to your friends or to your spouses have you said, Honey, honey, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry I, I said what I said. Uh, I, I'm so sorry your feelings were hurt, but I just had a really long day. Or, or if you would have just done this, then, then, then I wouldn't have said those things. But, but I'm sorry, but I'm sorry. When we do this, we are showing that our hearts are not truly repentant, but but want to preserve our pride rather rather than to take ownership of our sin. Instead, we ought to be like the prodigal son who returned home to his father and he was ready and willing to be a slave to his father in order to show his contrite heart. Now, it's absolutely true that we need to make sure we get this clear that the punishment for our sin was taken on the cross and we bear that burden no more. But that does not absolve us of the consequences for our sin in this world. Our sin, right, destroys trust, can destroy relationships, and those take time to repair. Worldly grief, however, wants to avoid the hard work of rebuilding trust, and it gets defensive when their sin affects their routine or uh, affects their reputation, produces excuses, and seeks to avoid any consequence. Fourth, worldly grief produces partial repentance, or is selective in its repentance. What I mean by this is that a person who may be caught stealing from their work, may them clean about everything that the company they know the company knows about, but doesn't confess the hours of, of a stolen time or other things they may have stolen that the company doesn't know about. Worldly grief will be readily, readily to confess sins that have already been revealed or the sins that we think are going to be acceptable to a group, but it will shy away from the sins that won't be received well or can further damage the reputation, and so they stay hidden. This selective or partial repentance is a sign of worldly grief that stems from a heart of self-protection rather than one that is truly sorry for sin. A lot of times we just like to stay on the surface with our sin. We like to, we like to apologize for the, our outbursts or... Or whatever it may be, but we, we fail to actually look at the root of the issue that a lot of times our anger or our, our words are a symptom of a much greater problem in our, our hearts. We, we, we repent. When we repent selectively, what this means is that we are saying, we may not believe this, but we say it by our, by our actions, that Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross, it, it's good enough to cover these sins, but it is not good enough to cover these ones. If you want to rid yourselves of of sin, you must bring to light all your sin and lay it at the foot of the cross, knowing that he will dispense grace and mercy to you. We know that one day, right, when we stand before the Lord, nothing will be a surprise to him. He will expose us for for what we really are and how freeing it will be for those who have already confessed everything to the Lord, knowing that it's already been forgiven. They've already felt that freedom that comes from forgiveness. It's all been covered by the blood of Jesus, and we don't have to fear when that day comes. Fifth, worldly grief we see here is ultimately self-focused. It produces a self-focus. It focuses on how hurt we are and focuses on how hurt our situation may be rather than how we have grieved others or how we have grieved God. Famous Psalm of David, Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. Now, certainly, if you know the story of David, he has certainly sinned egregiously in, in disastrous ways against many. But he gets it right to understand that the most offended party by our sin is always God. All of our sin, first and foremost, is always against our Creator. Yet worldly grief will, will lead us to wallow in self-pity, because we would rather see ourselves as the victim of our sin rather than seeing our sin against a holy God. It leads us to isolation. It leads us to inaction because we can't see outside of ourselves. We're so busy focused on how rotten we are and how bad we feel about ourselves that we fail to look up and actually see the pathway that God clearly lays out for repentance and, and restoration with our brothers and sisters in Christ and with him. Yeah, there, there are many, many more ways uh, worldly grief ex- expresses itself. We see it in the life of Esau and Ahab and others. But the scriptures are very clear that this type of sorrow, this worldly grief, does not lead to repentance. So, Church, we need to be aware that whenever the Word of God uh, convicts us of our of our sin, we feel that, that feeling of sadness or conviction over sin, whether it be through our personal study in the Word or a sermon, um, or maybe even a rebuke from a godly friend or spouse, we must be careful not to believe that our feelings of sorrow mean that we've truly repented. Just because we feel convicted means that we need to stop there. In my study, I came across just a, what I call a dagger of a quote. It just cuts right to the heart from Charles Spurgeon, who uh, gave a sermon on sincere repentance, and he, it really made me pause. It's, he says this, Oh, it is good thus to hear the voice of God, but you may sit, and while some powerful texts are being well handled, you may say, I think it is true, but it must enter the heart before you can repent. How often has conviction brought you to your knees and you have almost repented? You are almost alive. You have almost every external organ of religion which the Christian has, but you have not life. You have repentance, but not sincere repentance. Spurgeon goes on in the same sermon to compare false repentance or worldly grief to a body that has just died. It looks alive, it feels warm, but as time passes, it's clear that nothing but death reigns inside and if we as a church and as individuals walk through life only convicted by the word of God and never change we are like those dead bodies that Spurgeon describes they look alive they look healthy but over time we expose ourselves that the quality of repentance will one day be exposed and so with all that we need to ask ourselves then, then, what does true repentance look like? What, what does God ask of us in our repentance? In our passage, Paul again he's rejoicing. This is a is a happy passage because uh, the Corinthians' grief did not come from what uh, it did did come from God uh, because they showed a godly grief that led to repentance. And, and so, what is repentance? We haven't defined it yet. Uh, repentance, uh, this Greek word, is called metanoia, which means to have a change of mind or to think otherwise. Puritan Thomas Watson, who wrote a really great book called The Doctrine of Repentance, uh, defines it this way that repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. So, a work of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. It involves repentance, involves the use of our mind, our emotions, our will to turn from sin and towards a new obedience in Christ. To be clear, when we first come to Jesus, and we repent of our sins for the first time. God gives us this gift of repentance for the first time. We come and we feel that refreshing of knowing that our sins have been forgiven. Now as believers, we are to now live a lifestyle of repentance as we learn more and more how sinful we are and how holy God is. Okay, we are not being resaved every day, but our repentance is renewing the salvation already gifted to us in Christ. It's reminding of what God has already done for us. And look how Paul describes this godly grief in, in verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but what also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. You probably notice the, the string of seven terms that he uses to describe the repentance. And Paul right here is giving us a great insight at what ought to be true of our repentance when we see our own sin. So let's work through those seven terms real fast. Paul first, he commends them for their earnestness. Godly grief produces earnestness. The earnestness that Paul is commending them for is the speed of their repentance and the careful attention to which they gave to their repentance. It wasn't a slow, gradual process of them wrestling with whether or not this was really sin, if we should listen to Paul or should we not. But rather, when they received Paul's letter, they saw their sin, and with great haste, they wanted to run away from it, and they wanted to be careful to repent well. They wanted to make under, make sure they understood where they had been wrong and where the new path was that they needed to walk in. This eagerness, this earnestness is a sign of true repentance. Second, we see this godly grief produced an eagerness to clear themselves. Now, first, when you might read that, you think, well, I thought we weren't supposed to defend ourselves uh, seems like they're trying to defend themselves here to clear themselves of of wrong. No, in this passage, I don't think Paul is praising their earnestness to defend their self-righteousness, but instead praises them for showing a great eagerness to clear themselves of all charges of sin. Meaning they were eager to come clean with everything so that any further accusation of sin against them would not stand. A professor in, in seminary told me this was really, really helpful. Uh, he says, you'll never be no one will ever be above uh an accusation of sin. Anybody can accuse you of anything. But somebody who is truly repentant it can, can come clean, those accusations will not stick. Uh, people will rally around and say, no, that, that is not true. That is that is not the person I know. Because they have come clean. When they when they confess sin, uh they come clean with, with everything. And that's what we see here. We need to be eager to bring all our sin before the Lord, for sin cannot survive. In the light, And when we do this, we get to experience the freedom of a clean conscience, knowing that you have nothing to hide because all sin has been covered at the cross. Third, we see godly grief here produces an indignation or a hatred of our sin. Hatred. When the Corinthians came to terms with their sinfulness of their sin and their fellowship, instead of continuing to accommodate it, they hated it and sought to rid themselves of it and of those who continued in it. We see the same hatred for sin in Paul in Romans 7 when he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Godly grief produces hatred towards sin because we know how much it offends God. We know that it robs us of our joy and it keeps us from delighting in the good gifts of God. Do you you hate your sin? Do you do you try to just like, I wish I wouldn't have done that, but do you hate that the sin robs you of your joy when you when you come into church with a burden? Do you hate that it feels that way? When we hate our sin, it, it leads us to, to action. It, it takes t- steps to rid yourselves of it. We know that we truly hate our sin when we receive rebuke and it comes our way, we are We're not defensive about it, but we are vigilant to address it because we know what sin can do in our hearts and keep us from the joy of life. Fourth, godly grief produces a godly fear. A godly fear. The Corinthians were, were so sobered by Paul's rebuke and they were alarmed at the thought of judgment from God, but also I think they were alarmed at the deceitfulness of sin. That for months they could go, being duped into thinking that their actions and that their conduct was actually pleasing to God, but instead it was actually kindling the wrath of God against them. I think there is an element of alarm and fear that we ought to have when we realize how easy it is to be blinded by our sin. That fear ought to lead us to ask God to actually show us our sin. Last Friday in the men's Bible study, uh, we are going through the Psalms, and we got to Psalm 19, where David prayed that God would keep him from hidden sins and presumptuous sins. And we ought to pray like David with a healthy fear that God would bring to light any sin that we may not be able to see because of our arrogance or because of our blindness. And this is where the community of believers is so, so necessary. Without Christians in your life who know you at a heart level, it'll be so easy for sin to blind you and to assess your spiritual life um, falsely, right? We are to sharpen one another. We are to have, uh, again, a, a fear of the deceitfulness of sin that we want to run to prayer and run to community to help others to see. Uh, again, if you get married, you have kids, and all the other people are in your life, or you have a roommate for the first time, and you realize and they, they see your sin, and, and you see your own sin in a whole different way, and we ought to have that same fear, even if you feel like you're, you're doing well, to like always have a sober fear that sin may be, again, we may be blinded to our own sin. Fifth, godly grief produces a longing for restoration. Paul had been greatly hurt by the sin of this young church. You can imagine how hurt he must have been. And he was even anxious, thinking that if they didn't repent, uh, that their relationship might never be restored. But here we see their godly grief produced a longing for their relationship to be restored with their Spiritual father Paul, so a sign that God has given you a godly grief is that you long to restore the relationships that you may have damaged through your sin. If you ever feel that tension that you have with someone when you sin and there's something in between, I I know if I sin against my wife in the morning, we go to work and like all day you just have that burden. Like I just I, I want to get back together. We're not right together. We need to make sure that we make this this right. You, you want to be zealous and you want to be. Longing to make sure that that relationship is, is restored. There ought to be an unrest in our hearts. One, to make sure that relationship is made right. And when we truly see the damage uh, that our sin has caused, we want that to happen. And, right, what a beautiful picture it is when, when marriages are restored, right, when friendships get reunited back together. What, what joy it is when sins are truly forgiven. We we'll have to long for that. Six, godly grief produces a zealous repentance. Paul here is commending the Corinthians for their zeal to make sure that swift discipline was handed down in their midst and the intensity, talks about the intensity of their response to Paul's letter for the person who was the offender. They were not timid in making sure that sin did not have a place in their midst. They were passionate about it and they were zealous for their holiness. We see the same zealousness that Jesus talks about actually in Revelation 3.19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Here, Jesus tells the church at Laodicea that he disciplines those he loves and our reaction to God's discipline ought to be zealous repentance. And then lastly, our text says that godly grief produces a heart that seeks to right what was wronged. A heart that seeks to right what was wronged. And I believe that's what Paul is saying here when he says what punishment or what else can be translated, or what avenging of the wrong. And at every point they proved themselves innocent in the matter. And I agree with some commentators that think that Paul actually is alluding here to the actions of restitution. Actions that show practically that their repentance is actually earnest, even if it comes at a great cost to them. I think we have a great example of this in Zacchaeus, that wee little man that we see in Luke 19 a man right who had stolen a bunch of money from, from people as a tax collector, took some off the top for himself, you know, got himself a nice vacation home somewhere in, in Jerusalem. And, and, and after Jesus you know, calls him down for the tree, and said, hey, I'm going to your house today and they have a meal together with him. Look at what Zacchaeus says. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today's salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. So just because Judas gave back even more than the money, uh, his restitution doesn't equal repentance as we saw with Judas. This is not penance as we discussed earlier, but Zacchaeus is showing that he was willing and ready to make what he could to make it right. Even if at great expense to himself, right? Half of my goods I give to the poor and fourfold, I give back to anybody I have defrauded. That was a sign to Jesus that this was true and right repentance. Godly grief is willing to do whatever it takes to try to make what what was wrong right again. And if we look down in our passage to verse 13, we see that when God's people walk in this repentance that the Corinthians did, what happens? God dispenses joy. He dispenses comfort. And he dispenses refreshment. Look at verse 13. Therefore, Corinthians, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. And repentance is not easy. It is very painful at times. It is messy. But true repentance always leads to comfort. It always leads to joy and refreshment and life in God. And not only for the one uh, who is actually repenting, right? But for also the fellowship of believers, the people that are around you. When somebody truly repents, we see uh, it has a ripple effect of joy throughout the entire community. We see Paul being comforted and we see Titus who get, got to see it firsthand. And he's, he's happy and everyone's rejoicing because how wonderful uh, the repentance is here. Yet Satan, right? He loves to tempt us with the lie that it's better to keep sin hidden and rather than bring it to the light. He wants to keep you believing that your sin is too great to be forgiven or that your church community, that your family will never embrace you again if you come clean. Yet we know, right, as a church, we are a church full of sinners. We are a full of, a, of people who have been redeemed by Christ. We have no righteousness of our own, but only that which is, comes from Christ, who bought us, who ransomed us from our sin so that we could become children of God. So when we ever hear anybody rejoice coming clean with their sin, we ought to rejoice with the angels because the work of God has been done. This is not of ourselves. This is not something that we get to manufacture on our own, but this this, this shows that God is doing a work in that person's life. And that person may have hurt us wrongly. That person may have grieved us deeply. But we ought to act like Jesus who, who we sinned against every day and yet he holds his arms open wide for us to come. So, church, when we are faced with our sin, like the Corinthians, we have two options, right? We, we can cover ourselves with fig leaves like Adam and Eve and kind of hide from God and, and hope that he doesn't see us and, and hope that, again, we can just kind of float along. Or we can embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Church, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the gift of repentance. We know that apart from you, our grief over our sin would always be worldly grief. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we walk in worldly grief where we selectively repent, when we are more sorrowful over our circumstances than how we have grieved you or hurt others. Lord, please, would we be a church? that is known for our godly grief. And would we take time today and to confess in the quiet of our hearts or in our families, in our homes, and to others, to confess our sins to you, Lord Jesus, knowing that you will forgive us when we confess them and help us to walk the first steps of repentance. Lord, if there's anybody here today who has never repented of their sins to you, who has never asked for your forgiveness, Lord, would you please show them the beauty and the mercy of Jesus that is for them today? That they have a Savior who bids them to come to find forgiveness, to find mercy, to find grace, a clean conscience, and they can find it at the cross of Christ. Lord, as we close with a song about your abundant mercy, May we find comfort and rest in you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.